When I was exposed to Trillium, it affected me in a way I wasn't prepared for. I discovered I was able to access certain emotions. I wanted more. When did you realize you were becoming addicted? Two days ago. I began experiencing agitation and anxiety. Withdrawal symptoms. It's going to take time. It won't be easy. I understand. Welcome to Trechnobabble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd, and would never risk my life to get high. Probably. And I'm Elizabeth, plain, simple Elizabeth, and student of humanoid psychology. (laughs) Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. Uh, Merry Christmas, Elizabeth. (laughs) Merry Christmas. I love, um, I love that we're color-coordinated and we didn't even plan that. Exa- well, everything we do is unplanned. This just, this just falls <laughs> together. It's so easy. Perfect. Um, yeah, we are recording uh, about a week before Christmas uh, in 2022. I think we're releasing in February of 2023, so sorry about that. But as your Christmas present, Drekno Babblers and Elizabeth, today we're going to talk about drugs. Woohoo! <laughs> so I look forward to uh, seeing what you put in my stocking. Oh, oh okay. We'll begin with our first look at early TNG, specifically the first season episode called Symbiosis, which aired in 1988, was written by Robert Lewin and directed by Wynne Phelps. The Enterprise rescues a freighter from solar flare activity. The freighter crew exhibit odd behavior, specifically a packlid-like dimness and inability to execute basic functions, as well as an obsessive protectiveness over their cargo. We've lost, I don't know, something. I am no longer able to maintain this orbit, nor am I able to use the main thrusters. It's all, you know, dead, I guess. It's all shut down. Well, that is a little vague. What is the computer analysis? Well, the computer's not working very well. Freighter, we're going to lock on the tractor beam and pull you out of orbit. Hey, that's great. This may be understandable, as the cargo is a drug which treats but cannot cure a plague which has devastated their world for generations. But they actually sacrifice two of their crew in order to secure the safety of the drug. The four aliens the crew managed to rescue are actually from two different planets, with distinctly different attitudes and presentations. The freighter crew protecting the drugs are the Ornarans and have apparently failed to pay the other two, the Breckians, for the drugs they need. The Breckians are polished and erudite, snobby, you might say. All the aliens possess some sort of electrical powers which they use to attack each other in frustration. During the briefing, Picard learns that both cultures have stagnated over the last hundred years or so, leading to their having few remaining ships. Fortunately, the Enterprise has the technology to repair the vessels. In the meantime, Picard finds himself with a series of problems. 
The Breckians' entire economy depends on the sale of the drug, Felicium, to the Anarans, which explains their seemingly heartless insistence that they be paid, even while their Anaran counterparts suffer from the plague. Your society dedicated exclusively to the production of a single product. A product for which you have no use, but which the Anarans cannot live without. One of life's little ironies, Captain. It's mutually beneficial. The Anarans provide us with the necessities of life. And we provide them with the necessities of living. Yes, the plague, Crusher determines, has been cured for a long time. The Felicium is at this point only a powerful narcotic to which the whole of Onara is addicted. Their plague symptoms are withdrawal from the drug. This gives the Breckians the opportunity to appear magnanimous. We want to be fair, Captain. We agree to permitting them two doses for immediate use. No charge. How long is the dosage effective? It varies with the individual. But never more than 72 hours. And then the symptoms return. Yes. But Felicium inhibits the sickness with total efficiency. Allowing the Ornarans to lead normal lives. I may not know Felicium's full effect on Onarian physiology, but I know how to interpret physical reaction. Felicium's a narcotic. And to Jean and Romas and everyone on their world. Is a drug addict. Despite what they now know, Picard cannot interfere in what he calls the symbiotic relationship between Brecca and Onara over the objections of Crusher, who is understandably frustrated with the Prime Directive in this case. The Onarans become increasingly desperate to acquire their drug while the Breckians arrive at an interesting conclusion to give this shipment to the Onarans. Their larger economic concerns over maintaining this cozy and profitable arrangement trump the immediate losses they might suffer for not getting paid for this shipment. The Prime Directive is a fickle mistress, however. Picard chooses to interpret the Prime Directive in a clever way. He can't reveal the truth to the Onarans. He can't directly interfere in the exploitative economic relationship between these two cultures. But he can refuse to repair the Onaran freighters. He can allow the deterioration of these cultures to lead inexorably to the end of the exploitation. But not before the painful transition away from addiction. You know, Elliot, sometimes Star Trek is timeless, and sometimes Star Trek is very, very dated. And in this episode, Tasha's dare speech reminded, like, I was just brought back immediately to elementary school. Wesley, no one wants to become dependent. That happens later. On my home planet, there was so much poverty and violence that for some, the only escape is through drugs. You have to understand, drugs can make you feel good. They make you feel on top of the world. You're happy, sure of yourself, in control. Before you know it, you're taking the drug not to feel good, but to keep from feeling bad. And that's the trap. All you care about is getting your next dosage. Nothing else matters. Well, you're dating us by by saying that, Elizabeth. You're telling everyone how old we are. Uh, fair, <laughs> fair. Okay. No, I I agree with you. There, it's it's the thing for which I think this episode is most infamous is that little "drugs are bad" speech that Tasha gives. Um, but I I'm gonna go with type here and defend it a little bit in this respect, which is I think. The typical thing, 80s, 90s TV thing to do with this sort of um, G.I. Joe speech thing would be to say, you know, drugs are bad and just say no. And that's sort of 
where this is what this is remembered as but what she actually says to wesley is you know i hope you are never in a situation socially economically whatever that causes you to feel as though you need drugs in your life to cope there was so much poverty and violence that for some the only escape is through drugs i guess i just don't understand wesley i hope you never do and which is a little bit more of a subtle message i think and fits in with the whole Star Trek ethos of saying, like, one of the reasons we ostensibly in the Federation don't really have drug drug addicts is that our social structure doesn't create the circumstances that might lead to addiction that way. Thank you for defending that little speech in that way, because that, that actually is very forward thinking and um, reminds me of, like, this is the sci-fi equivalent of the rat park experiment have you heard of that rat park rat park yeah there was this canadian doctor um dr bruce alexander who wanted to see whether or not the idea of what caused addiction at the time was true and the idea was access to drugs caused addiction like if you have a drug near you you will automatically become addicted to it like that was kind of the thinking so he would place these rats in cages with two water bottles, and one was just regular water, and the other was water with morphine in it. And he wanted to see which of the water bottles these rats would drink from. And he's doing the experiment, and the first time he does it, the rats are just in, there's nothing else in their cage except like their food, their bed, and their water, and no other rats also. And in that situation, the rats would get, drink the morphine water bottle and become addicted to it. But, you know, Dr. Alexander's looking at that environment saying, wait a minute, rats don't live like this. And so he repeated the experiment, but this time he created like the ideal rat park, essentially. There were other rats, there were fun things to do, the rats could have sex, you know, it essentially was like, here's the perfect life for a rat. If you can like, you know, as close as humans can assume that would be. And he had both Rat water- Federation. Rat Federation, yeah. And again, they had both water bottles. And when the rats were in a good environment, they would occasionally like tap the morphine water bottle, but they didn't abuse it at all. Like it was fascinating. Hmm. And that was one of the first indications in like the scientific community that our idea of what causes addiction is wrong. It's not access to the drugs themselves, it's the environment in which people find themselves. Yeah, so Trek makes it a, a more of a social commentary than an individual kind of chastisement or a, 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 a specific um, anti-drug program. It's mm-hmm. not really saying, hey, drugs are bad. It's saying the reason why you would use drugs the wrong way has more to do or at least a lot to do with what's going on around you than necessarily what's going on um with yourself, although it, they're, 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 I'm sure they're connected and we'll talk more about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sticking with sort of social systems, you know, the Breckian Onaran relationship here, this quote unquote symbiosis is, um, it's really interesting. And if you're not an anti-capitalist kind of person, like we are, sorry, full disclosure, um, I don't know how it's going to read, if it's going to read as cheesy or unlikely or whatever. But to me, it rang very true. Because we live in a world with extremely exploitative, 
uh, economic systems, especially when it comes to healthcare. Especially and when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry. Like, let's be real. It's exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Of, of all the sort of stacked pyramids, probably at the top, you have military spending and pharmaceuticals. And the fact that they've created this analogy where you have a, 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 a ruling class, essentially, in this planet dyad, which is all they have to do is produce this drug. That's all they do. Yeah. And they get to live like kings and queens. Um while these other people, not only are they suffering, like they're suffering the symptoms of what turns out to be withdrawal, but they think it's something else. They yeah. think it's this plague, but they think it's withdrawal and they stagnated. They don't know how to fix their own ships. Um, but they also, ha- like they're essentially, they, they have what they believe to be a benevolent relationship with the Brechians. Like they don't realize they're being exploited, which is the hardest part to watch. Yeah. That's why it's so hard for Crusher to just keep quiet about this truth that she knows and not be able to say anything. You don't think drug addiction and exploitation is sufficient cause to to do something? This situation has existed for a very long time. With one society profiting at the expense of the other. That's how you see it. Yeah, the Prime Directive stuff is really interesting. And I I actually have a criticism of of that in this episode in particular. But I'm going to get to that in a second. What I want to also clear up is this... You're right. They are going through withdrawal. Felicium's a narcotic. Today, we would call that an opiate. And and that's a pain reliever, essentially. And there are legal, you know, pain relievers like morphine. Um, You can actually get legal heroin, I think, if you are in enough pain when you go to uh, the hospital. Like you can. I think it's some places, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also, our bodies naturally produce opiates. Like, we we have opiates in our system right now. Um, and we need that, actually, because otherwise we would be feeling way more of what our body is currently doing than we do right now. So if I were to magically remove all the opiates from your system right now, the ones that you um, produce naturally, you would feel like you were on fire. Wow. Yeah. So opiates themselves are not a bad thing. What happens when you abuse a synthetic opiate is that you're giving your you're giving your body something that makes you feel good. It reduces pain. But because your body naturally produces opiates and you start to increase the supply, there's less demand on your own body to produce their own natural opiates. And so your body stops producing it. And that's when you get addiction because suddenly you do become dependent on this drug to, to, in order to have the opiates that you actually do need to survive. And that's why withdrawal hurts so much. Like they are physically in pain because they don't have the natural opiates in their system anymore. And that's one of the really, really difficult things about getting off of opiates is is the fact that there's this imbalance chemically in your body that you do need, but you just have to change the way you get it. And it can take anywhere from two months to six years for your natural opiates to come back online if you've been abusing it. I am really glad you said that because I was under, and I would imagine a lot of people under the misconception that the the physical addiction that opiates, for example, create in your body is an artificial one in the sense that it was it, it creates a dependency your body had that it did not otherwise have so it, it creates a stigma 
in the way when you when you think of it that way like oh you're putting this unnatural thing in your body and then your body wants it you're you're screwing up your own chemistry you're 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 being bad mm-hmm. right which you know yes addiction is is harmful obviously but being aware of the fact that it is a natural substance in our own bodies that we're simply putting out of our natural balance is a lot more sympathetic yeah <laughs> in terms of how we look at people who ha- are suffering from addiction for opiates that is true there uh, not all drugs replicate a natural chemical you know like methamphetamine that's very different um and so so yes i do think it's really important to decrease the stigma toward people who are suffering from addiction whether that's alcohol or opiates or meth or you know pick your drug of choice because there are so many of them um (laughs) you can also be predisposed to becoming addicted to opiates if your body doesn't produce enough opiates naturally. Drug addiction is not a moral failing. It's a really complicated cause and effect system. And usually just people are doing the best they can in a shitty situation. We could have made their burden easier. Perhaps in the short term. To what end? Beverly, the prime directive is not just a set of rules. It is a philosophy and a very correct one. Whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well-intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. It's hard to be philosophical when faced with suffering. Early TNG is an interesting point on the map of how the Prime Directive works in the franchise. It's it's contentious, even among really dedicated fans. Um, And I'd love to hear what you thought about it here. Okay, so in a platonic ideal context, I do think I see the value in what Picard did by not interfering. But when you're dealing with drug addictions, the prefrontal cortex, which is where you make logical decisions, where you're able to weigh the way choices and think about the consequences of your actions and plan for the future and think about things that happened in the past and make decisions based on how well or badly that went. That all happened. That's called executive functioning, essentially. And when you're addicted to a drug, that part of your brain goes offline. You don't have access to it. And that's part of why people make terrible decisions. Their, Their logical brain is offline. And their emotional brain is telling them, if you don't get this substance, you are going to die. Captain, you must give us back our cargo. The Brekkians claim it belongs to them. They lie. It is not my decision. We need some now. Now. I don't care if it's your decision. Get us some. Captain, what is happening to us is happening to thousands more on Anara. Please understand the magnitude of the problem. Your people don't need it. The Brekkians don't need it. Our people do. If you don't give it to us, you will be a party to murder, not only of us, but of an entire civilization. It is literally a life or death situation um, to them. And in some cases, it really is. And that's why you have to be very careful about how you recover and how you go through withdrawal. But a big part of recovery is basically replacing the executive function until theirs comes back online. And that can take a really long time. And so a lot, there's a lot of different recovery models, like AA included, that basically give people a structure until they can structure 
themselves again until they can structure their lives, until their own executive functioning comes back online in order for them to start to make good decisions. It's almost like training wheels. And so I see Picard do this and he's like, you're on your own, you know, good luck. Like, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to give you any training wheels or any support while you are going to go through terrible withdrawal and before your logical thinking brain comes back online. And like that, that's not great. Absolutely heard. And I, I have mixed feelings about it in general. But what I take from not only this episode, but the sort of general idea about the Prime Directive is that there is a difference in the way the Federation deals with individuals and the way it deals with societies. Mm. And I think, you know, looking at, you know, it's an episode of TV with a tight budget and you've got four people we're talking about here, two of whom are drug addicts. And it's like, you look at saying, Picard saying to these people, well, it's going to suck, but you'll get over it. It's like a very stoic kind of almost um, hyper-masculine kind of thing. Like, well, just just deal. Just just uh, uh, bite the bullet and, mm. and get through it. And I get how that is not only um, sort of dated and problematic on a social level, but also uh, medically unsound, as, as you're pointing out. It's like, that's not really how... It might work, but it's it's riskier than doing it a, a different, more sort of holistic way. Um, but Picard's point is like the Enterprise and the Federation probably is not equipped to give <laughs> um, full like uh, withdrawal treatment to the entire planet yeah. of Ornora, right? In like a real way. They're not equipped and not willing, frankly, to just be the caretakers of an entire society. And so... Given that, the best choice is not to get involved. This is not the final thing I want to say about the Prime Directive, like in general on yeah. our show. There's lots to say about it. But that's the one thing I'll say is that in terms of the scale, I think that is important in terms of these captains' decision-making when it comes to the PD. No, heard. And, and I do think that's a really good point. And I have no idea how you would treat an entire planet or civilization that was addicted to drugs like that's a whole other framework good point but i still do think at least with the human current model you do need to offer some kind of scaffolding to people while they're rebuilding their own executive function and you have to balance that with it's the drug addict who has the ability to heal themselves and that's like a really important philosophical foundation in, in psychotherapy is, is the client has everything they need in order to overcome whatever it is that they're dealing with. Like it's, they're not dependent on the therapist. The therapist doesn't have the answer. It's really on them. Like they have the innate capability of recovery. So both those things are true. It's just how do you, how do you provide the space and the best possible chance for someone to recover. DS9's second season brought us the classic episode The Wire in 1994. It was written by Robert Hewitt Wolfe and directed by Kim Friedman. Garrick and Bashir are taking a stroll. 
This is in the days before the producers told Andrew Robinson that he wasn't allowed to be gay and courting the good doctor. They discuss a book Garrick lent him, a classic of Cardassian literature called The Neverending Sacrifice. It's about as exciting as it sounds. This all seems like a throwaway gag, but we shall see. Garrick is unusually irritable and sensitive to crowds and noise today, and some physical symptoms don't escape the doctor's notice. Little things like clammy skin, a headache, oh, and the next night Garrick has become a reckless drunk at Quark's until he passes out in pain. Bashir discovers a malfunctioning Cardassian implant in Garrick's brain, and Bashir and Odo piece together that Garrick had hired Quark to acquire its specifications, illegally of course. Quark isn't going to be able to help, however, because the implant was given to Garrick by the head of the Obsidian Order, Cardassia's master spy network. The implant allows Garrick to release endorphins into his system in order to withstand the effects of torture in the event of his capture. I do hope you appreciate the irony, Doctor. The whole purpose of the implant was to make me immune to pain. Living on this station is torture for me, Doctor. The temperature is always too cold. The light's always too bright. Every Bajoran on the station looks at me with loathing and contempt. So one day, I decided I couldn't live with it anymore. And I took the pain away. What follows is a series of stories, lies for the most part, although there are elements of truth in all of them, that Garrick tells Bashir in order to manipulate him into seeking out an Abrintain, the head of the Obsidian Order and Garrick's former mentor and father, but we don't know that yet. Despite Garrick's duplicitousness, Bashir dutifully goes above and beyond to help his patient, who is suffering a toxic mixture of withdrawal from the effects of the implant as it shuts down and, enigmatically, regrets from the turns his life has taken after and perhaps during his time with the Order. I was a gull in the Cardassian mechanized infantry. It was the eve of the Cardassian withdrawal. A handful of Bajoran prisoners escaped from my custody. My aide, a man named Elam, tracked them to a Cardassian shuttle about to depart for Terek Nor. Elam and I were interrogating five Bajorans. They were children, Doctor! Elam wasn't my aide. He was... my friend. We grew up together. We were closer than brothers. Elam got aboard, but the captain refused to let him search the ship. They lived in bombed-out rooms, scrounged for food on the streets. They were filthy and they stank. Suddenly the whole exercise seemed utterly meaningless. So I had the shuttle destroyed. I let them go. I gave them whatever latinum I had in my pockets and opened the door and flung them back into the streets. Someone in the order was accused of letting some Bajoran prisoners escape. Killing the escapees, Elam, and 97 Cardassian civilians. Elam couldn't believe his eyes. He looked at me as if I were insane. I did everything in my power to make sure that Elam was accused instead of me, only to discover that he'd beaten me to it. Bashir eventually seeks Tain out, and Tain is expecting him. Garrick isn't the only capable spy in the Quadrant. Tain is all too eager to give Bashir the information he's after to save Garrick's life, knowing that the life he's been left with is torture for him. I want him to live a long, miserable life. I want him to grow old on that station, surrounded by people who hate him. Garrick mentioned an old friend of his the other day. He said it was Elim. <laughs> Never tell the truth and a lie will do. Doctor, 
Elim is Garrick's first name. So this is late season two. And one of the really interesting things that we end up realizing retroactively here is that the Garrick that we had known from the second episode on uh, was Garrick High. <laughs> I know, right? Like, right? It's just like, wait, I've never seen you sober. Like, you've always been high or drunk or the equivalent of that when I've been interacting with you. You've always seemed so... That explains why you've been so happy. An open mind. The essence of intellect. As you may also know, I have a clothing shop nearby. So if you should require any apparel or simply wish, as I do, for a bit of enjoyable company now and then, I'm at your disposal, Doctor. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting just because he has such a sort of striking personality and has a way, you know, he's obviously got this secrecy, but he's always very charming and affable and has a way with people and he's a little manipulative, but it's sort of fun and people put up with him and it's, he's got a very ebullient personality. Mm -hmm. um, and what we come to find out is it's, at least partially informed by this artificial means, which I think is fascinating yeah. <laughs> and says a lot about why, you know, I know people who they, they you might say they drink socially. I'm one of those people, I think, <laughs> but wherever that line is of like, are you drinking socially because it's a little easier to talk to people, you become more the life of the party, or is it that you have such anxiety or pain around people or around yourself in your own thoughts that you are actually in some way addicted to a substance to get you to be able to cope with that. Mm -hmm. I think there are different ways of defining addiction. The one I'm currently settled on right now, you know, like I'm not wedded to it, but it, it's the one that makes sense to me, is that addiction is more about dysfunction than the amount of something that you're taking. You know, like if you can drink mm -hmm. six beers a night and be fine and get up and work your next day, the day, next day and your relationships are, you know, basically normal. Are you an alcoholic? Or if you have six drinks and you are blackout drunk and you can't go to work the next day and you yell at your partner and then go have a drink and just like, that, do, you, do you see the difference in dysfunction there? Of course. Well, yeah. and there are some people who could have one glass of wine a night and be dysfunctional. Yeah, right? yeah. It's not really about the amount. It's totally not about the amount, yeah. But something I find really interesting in this episode is also Garrick's resistance to Bashir helping him. Like, did you did that, did that come across to you as well? Like, he almost doesn't want Bashir's help. He does. He knows he needs it. This is, this is how I take it, and I think it's open to interpretation, is that he does know he needs someone to go to Tane at some point to get this information. He knows that, and that's his end game. But instead of just saying, hey, Bashir, can you help me out? Can someone go and do this? That would be just not, he's not comfortable. He's, he has no um, familiarity or like uh, sympathy with that approach to people yeah. and to relationships. It's that, no, I'm going to get you to do the thing that I want you to do, but I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to manipulate you. I'm going to um, play with your feelings. I'm going to Whatever I'm going to need to do to stay in perfect control of the situation is how I read it. Yeah. Is that Garrick is so uncomfortable with a lack of control that he has to get there through these duplicitous means. By then, Tane had retired to the Aeroath colony. He couldn't protect me. I can see that Garrick hasn't changed a bit. Never tell the truth and a lie will do. 
yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a whole other kind of dysfunction. You know, so you have these two guys, both of whom are very, very smart uh, for different reasons, uh, essentially vying for control, but with very different motivations in terms of their means. But what's ironic is that they both want the same thing. They both want to treat Garrick. Yeah. And they both are after the same thing, but because they both have to be doing things their way, <laughs> um, they end up going through this whole interesting and, and misleading episode. You're right, Elliot. Yeah, and... and... You know, I'll only say that this once, that you're right. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, but you, now you have it recorded, so damn it. Um, the idea of control is a really interesting one in, in when it comes to healthcare. You know, you see Bashir doing all these things in order to help Garrick, and Garrick's kind of resisting it a little bit, and it's really towing the line of this idea of coercive treatment. It's this way of manipulating people to comply with the wishes of, of a caretaker that's under the guise of their best interest, but actually it's the person in power manipulating the person without the power in order to comply or behave a certain way. And I, I kind of see that being right on the edge of like what Bashir is doing right now. I thought you enjoyed my company. Oh, I did. And that's the worst part. I can't believe that I actually enjoyed eating mediocre food and staring into your smug, sanctimonious face. I hate this place. And I hate you. Okay, Garak. That's your prerogative. Now I really think you should lie down. I see. Um... Well, in any other situation, with any other person, right, you could see Bashir going there, especially at this part of his character arc, of thinking he knows better than everybody and yeah. having to be the smartest guy in the room and probably being right, but it, that's, you know, not really the point here. It's only with Garrick that he has someone who's sort of an intellectual peer in that respect um, mm -hmm. and who's able to... He, he, it's Bashir who ends up being sort of coerced yeah, <laughs> which is ironic yeah question i have for you is so at one point garrick says and it's unclear everything garrick says is unclear because is he saying this to manipulate bashir into getting what he wants or is he being sincere in what he says and the answer is probably yes and yes and um but he says you couldn't even begin to fathom what i'm capable of i'm a doctor you're my patient. That's all I need to know. Wrong again. You need to know who you're trying to save. Obviously, doctors take a Hippocratic Oath and are obligated to save any patient, um, regardless of their backstory. But there's, there's, there is something, you know, you're entering the healthcare profession, Elizabeth, and I'm curious if, that's any, if that occurs to you ever. It's like, God... Do I really want to help this asshole? <laughs> I, I do think a lot of people think they are terrible and that they are not worth saving. You know, I think that's something people, a lot of people think, unfortunately, and is part of their resistance to receiving treatment and to receiving help because there's so much shame about who they think they are that they can't, they, they don't want to go near it. 
So two things come to mind. One, one is this idea of unconditional positive regard. And it's the idea that no matter what the person in front of you says, like you are still going to see them as an individual worthy of respect, you know, and like that is unfaltering. So that is something we strive to do in therapy. It can be really challenging sometimes, but like having unconditional positive regard is like one of the key things that you need to be able to offer a client. The other is this idea that hurt people hurt people. And if you really dig into the story of someone who has committed vile acts, they've usually been the victim of vile acts. And there's usually something in their own history and their own story, which is heartbreaking. And culturally, we don't want to acknowledge that. We just want to say, you are a terrible person. You are evil. And never knowing why, never knowing what led that person to behave in such a way. Because, and ultimately trying to see what we could have done in that person's life that could have prevented that behavior in the first place. You know, like there's a lot of systemic issues which perpetuate individual violence, but we don't want to look at that. We don't want to look at how the lack of public housing and the lack of, you know, early education, like people who find themselves in those situations end up not having the developmental experiences they need in order to be a functional member of society and doing terrible things. So that's a long-winded way of saying there's always a reason. There's a reason someone is acting the way they are acting. And can you have the compassion to hear their own tragic story and hold that what they did might have been reprehensible, but they also have their own suffering that needs to be witnessed? And that's that's really showcased, I think, here. I mean, you want to say what Garrick's tragic backstory is in a nutshell it's it's Tane whom we know from later episodes is actually Garrick's father Um, and it's really interesting the way Garrick externalizes that childhood trauma by making Elim a different person in his stories even though it's it's just him it was always just him Um, and what that's what we see is that even though he's lying to Bashir Bashir's one his curiosity but two his sort of medical ethics and compassion for Garrick lead him to try, you know, to pulling this out of him in whatever way Garrick's able or willing to to express it. Um, and in the end, it does lead to to his treatment. And whether or not Garrick is willing to acknowledge it, it does create more intimacy between them as friends. Yeah. I know Garrick is such a fascinating character, and we have to, as an audience, piece together what is true about him for the most part until maybe the very end of the series. We have to kind of piece together what actually is true about him as a person from the little breadcrumbs left behind in all the lies that he tells to the people around him. What I want to know is out of all the stories you told me, which ones were true and which ones weren't? My dear doctor, they're all true. Even the lies, especially the lies. You know, humans, we're storytellers, and we tell stories that may not have literally happened, but still contain some kind of fundamental truth about our experience. Like, that's something we do almost without even thinking about it. Like, that's what mythology is. That's what religion is. You know, it's just like, how can you create a story that expresses 
a fundamental truth about the human experience, you know, or about your own experience. You know, how do you communicate that truth? And sometimes we make up stories and sometimes there are lies. And but this idea of like, if you're lying, you're not being truthful, I think is actually it's much more nuanced. And Garrick really plays with that in the, in the whole series, which is one of what one of the reasons why I, I love him as a character. Yeah, it's never quite so black and white. We'll finish up today with our first actually good episode of Enterprise. Damage comes from late season three in 2004, was written by Phyllis Strong and directed by James L. Conway. So it's the season-long arc season, meaning we pick up in medias res with the Enterprise getting its ass kicked by the Zindi. T'Pol is in command, watching the bridge fall apart around her. Suddenly, the attack stops. We see that the cause for this ceasefire is a widening rift within the Zindi ruling council. Archer is the Zindi's prisoner, and the cold-blooded contingent of the Zindi race is becoming more and more at odds with the warm-blooded. For more on all that, uh, watch Season 3 of Enterprise. On the ship called Enterprise, the crew frantically try and contain the extreme damage they've suffered. Deaths, injuries, warp drive offline, but acting Captain T'Pol seems mostly preoccupied with Cargo Bay 2, where the Trillium D is stored. For those not in the know, Trillium D is a substance which allows ships to survive the artificial anomalies in this area of space called the Expanse. The side effect of the substance is that it fucks up Vulcan neurochemistry, so they tend not to use it around their Vulcan first officer, now Captain. However, she has secretly become addicted to the stuff during their harrowing voyage, thus explaining her odd focus on the cargo bay. Luckily, uh, relatively speaking, Archer is returned to the Enterprise by the Zindi Aquatics, thanks to that political rift. He's been compromised in a different way from his first officer. While the crew attempt against all odds to get the ship functional enough to resume their mission, they encounter another alien damaged vessel. These aliens are in distress themselves, and are a shocking reminder of the mission Archer thought he would be on himself before the Zindi threat. What brings you to this system? Curiosity. We're studying the Red Giant. It's the first one we've had the opportunity to explore. They're explorers relatively low stakes, peeking around the galaxy's hidden corners. They also happen to have a working warp coil, which is the only thing which will allow Archer to complete his mission. The aliens are sympathetic, but won't condemn themselves to a three-year-long journey home without warp. But Archer is desperate. Hoshi discovers a secret message from their Zindi contact, Degra, informing him of a crucial rendezvous which they will definitely miss without warp. Meanwhile, T'Pol's addiction symptoms continue to worsen. Barely able to function, she dons a spacesuit in order to enter the cargo bay, which is dangerously exposed to space. She nearly dies more than once, but she succeeds in collecting a chunk of Trillium D and injecting herself with it. When Archer decides to raid the alien vessel for its warp coil, fully compromising his stated ethics, T'Pol becomes emotionally unstable at this offense, a consequence of her prolonged substance abuse. I've made my decision. We can't save humanity without holding on to what makes us human. Those were your words to me. Once you rationalize the first misstep, it's easy to fall into a pattern of behavior. I'm not rationalizing anything. I know full well what I'm doing. I can't justify this course of action. We don't have a choice. I won't let you do it! She confides her addiction to Dr. Phlox, who is able to provide her marginal relief for the moment, but the damage to her mind and body will be permanent. She assumes command again while Archer conducts the raid personally. 
The Enterprise crew, led by Archer's example, make every effort to minimize their impact on the aliens, leaving them Trellian supplies, refusing to disable their weapons. But the effort itself threatens to make the raid unsuccessful. T'Pol manages to control her emotions enough to devise a way of finally acquiring the warp coil and fleeing the scene with minimal casualties. Why are you doing this? Because I have no choice. Yeah, a lot of drug addicts say they don't have a choice. And on an emotional level, that's true. Like they're getting signals. This is a life or death situation and they're choosing life because how could they, how could they live with themselves? Literally. Um, if they don't and like, how can Archer live with himself if he doesn't do this, but he also can't live with himself by doing it. It's, it's a real moral quandary there. There's obviously a lot of ethical issues explored here, which is one of the reasons this is one of Enterprise's best episodes, just so you know. <laughs> um, and and it, it's very dark. Um, but I do think what's interesting here is <clears throat> the fact that they chose to mirror Archer and DePaul in this way, because Archer obviously, well, maybe not so obviously, but he, he's not addicted to a substance, but he has become accustomed to a certain behavior that is different from his ground state as we would see in like the first two seasons on the first half of this season, where because of his experience, he is now kind of regularly making moral compromises and telling himself, well, I, I don't have a choice. I have to do this. Yeah. The ends justify the means. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which you can argue, and it is a, it, there's no right answer here as to whether that's true or not in this case, because we are talking about the life or death of potentially the entire planet. So there's, there, there's, there's not a clear cut answer there. However, what I find interesting is the fact that his, like I said, they, they, they choose to make his choices and the justifications to himself mirror those of someone who very clearly is a drug addict. Yeah. Making those same kinds of justifications. Yeah, like how do you rationalize this to yourself? You know, how do you, how do you bend over backwards to make whatever it is you're doing make sense to you? I did enjoy this episode, so thank you for telling me that this is one of the better Enterprise episodes. I'm not as familiar with this series as a lot of the other ones. But in, in a similar way to the TNG episode was Dating Dare, or, you know, um, you know, Cooking the Rock was such a crack and cocaine <laughs> illusion, <laughs> yeah. which is super yeah. 90s, early 2000s. And, and that honestly made me a little angry to see that. Angry? Why? Well, again, talking about the stigma on drug addicts... Um, Crack and cocaine is, there's so little sympathy for people who do crack. And a lot of the people who do crack are African American and low income because it's cheaper to make than cocaine. But it's the same drug. It's just different forms right. of it. And so there's this whole like social and racial prejudice and yeah, that, that's like kind of tied in to the cocaine and crack epidemics and the way that our government punished people instead of helping them. So when I saw Paul doing that, I just, I saw that as a way of being like, cocaine is bad, you know, and, and, and in a way that just because of all the other societal associations, it just made me, it, it was just very dated to me and in a way that I think punishes people who are struggling instead of helping them. Uh, I totally see what you mean now that you mention it. And there is, especially comparing it to the other episodes. So it is, I agree with you, it is clearly meant to, or at least the symptoms and the sort of behavior that DePaul exhibits are drawn from 
symptoms of addiction to cocaine or, or crack. Um, and you look at the, the Onarans from TNG or the way Garrick gets his thing from his implant, it's all very kind of clean and elegant. And, mm. um, you know, if T'Pol had snorted the Trelly MD through a $100 bill, it would have a different, it would send a different message about yeah. the way in which she is getting high. Um, that isn't quite as stigmatized as you, as just as you say, like, it looks like this kind of like, oh, you're back alley, you're a criminal, you're lying, you're not, you know, in some corporate boardroom consuming the same substance yeah. and having the same effect on your body and mind. Uh, yeah, totally. I did not think about that um, as, as being problematic in the way, especially because she is one of the only aliens on the ship. And of course, in Star Trek, yeah. aliens are meant to analogize, analogize um, uh, different races sometimes. So yeah, heard that's that's a problem, and it yeah. does it does date the episode in that way. Um, however, one of the things about DePaul that I find interesting, and I got to say, <laughs> finding DePaul interesting is a testament to the <laughs> fact that this is a much better episode <laughs> okay. than normal. I'm so sorry if there are Enterprise fans watching our our, our, our show. Please watch our show. <laughs> um, but I I have a hard time with Enterprise. I I, I admit. Um, however. Uh, Paul is really interesting here because of the effect that Trellium specifically has on Vulcans mm-hmm. is that it causes them to lose emotional control. And in addition to the physical addiction she's experiencing from the substance, she's becoming addicted in, in a psychological sense, I guess you would say, to the feeling of literally having access to her feelings, which is unhealthy for Vulcans. Um, but I find that concept really, really interesting one, just sort of what it says about the species and her as a character, but also about the fact that I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, addictions do play on both those levels. There's the physical side, but also the, like, I like the way this makes me feel side. Oh, a- absolutely. You know, like some people are like, you know, oh, I want to drink because it makes me feel good. I want to get high because it makes me feel good. Like we are pleasure-seeking creatures and most drugs take advantage of that, of our pleasure-seeking reward system in our in our physiology which we experience emotionally and psychologically (laughs) but also as a species humans are very pharmacological (laughs) you know like monks figured out how to make alcohol you know like we have been drinking you know for about as long as we've been existing as a species you know um I think it's one of the precursors of civilization in a lot of academic texts. It's like you have to be able to like write and make booze. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Culturally, alcohol and coffee change the way we think. And those are perfectly acceptable in most situations. There's coffee in that nebula. And, and, you know, and then you also have the pharmaceutical industry. You know, people are like, let me take a pill that will make me feel better. You know, let me take a pill that will cure this pain. Let me take a pill to change the experience I'm having. That's also like very normal in our society with all its problems. But then you have another set of substances that change the way you feel that we have said this is bad. How and why do we make that delineation if it's all kind of doing the same thing? The, the answer is sadly very political and economically driven, as I, I know you know, but it's worth repeating and just being clear about that is that you have different special interests which fund different projects. Yeah. And you know, one of the most 
I think well-known examples is uh, the issue with uh, with marijuana, yeah. um, which is a Schedule One substance in the United States, which is hilarious. It's like it's considered as harmful and illegal. That's changing somewhat yeah. um, on a local level uh, here in 2022, 2023. But on a federal level, it's still considered to be as um, criminally punishable as uh, as cocaine. Yeah. And, and- that, or heroin. <laughs> Which is insane if you actually looking at the effect of the drug in terms of the actual physiological effect it has on any human being. It, it's absurd to compare them. Absolutely, absolutely. Like there are, there's a really good argument to be made that marijuana is less harmful than alcohol, but yes. which which one's legal and which one's not? And you know, earlier this century, when when psychedelics were first being you know researched, and you know LSD was discovered, like people were looking at the ways of using those as medicine, like the psychological and physiological benefits of psychedelics. And then the sixties happened and we, and that whole thing was shut down and now they are criminalized. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm very happy to see there's a little bit of a psychedelic renaissance happening. And I'm very, I'm hopeful for how that will be seen differently in like, you know, it's already starting now, but like I'm really hoping we can get both marijuana and most psychedelics off of that schedule one in like 20 or 30 years. That's my soapbox. No, totally. But just just to sort of round out that thought, like, I mean, it goes back to the stuff with symbiosis where you have like the Breckians, you know, this upper echelon class analogous people. Um, their, their drug use is classy. It's legal. Yeah. Therefore, it's acceptable and, and not seen as a problem whereas the whereas someone like the bonarans or to paul with her little crack crack rock trillium yeah. d rock uh it, it's seen as yeah illicit back alley um and, and like i said the, the 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 motivations behind that are political racial in a lot of cases uh and primarily economic and that is a systemic problem for which there is not a simple answer but um certainly worth mentioning one of the things that we see here, again, both characters of Archer and Paul, with their moral compromise is they're hedging their bets mm. and they're looking for ways to do moral things to make up some of the ground on that compromise. So like Archer, obviously, he's like, I'll give you the trellium and I'll give you food and we won't we won't hurt your weapons. Like he's trying to say, I'm not the bad guy. I'm not a bad guy. I'm doing all these nice things. I just I have to have what I need. I have to have what I need. But I know that I'm wrong. So I'll I'll morally climb up the ladder a little bit with these other things. And then, you know, to Paul, she, she has her whole ethical soapbox, not unjustified. Uh, against Archer's actions and says, I'm not going to let you do this. This is wrong. You can't do this. I won't let you. Um, but of course, what's she wouldn't have said that if she not, weren't <laughs> having this drug problem, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's this weird idea that like what's coming from behind, as I think you've put it before, is this sense of like, if I get morally outraged at this thing, I am somehow making up some of the ground of my moral compromise on doing this other thing. Uh, can you say more about that? I'm not quite sure I, I understand fully. Um, it, it's, it's compensation, right? It's, mm, it's saying, yeah. I feel guilty. I find, with, especially with respect to drug abuse, people can become very moralistic. Yeah. 
and judgmental. Um, what? People can be uh, judgmental? What? <laughs> of course. But especially in this regard, because there is this guilt working in the background that is saying, I feel bad. About I feel what like I've done a bad thing. So I'm going to make up for it by being extra quote unquote good. But in this other way. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do agree that, like, I can see Archer doing that. I can kind of see T'Pol doing that. Like, she's, like, I can't look at my own internal, like, moral outrage, so I'm going to project, one of my favorite words, I'm going to project that on you. You're the asshole in this situation. You're the one that's not doing <laughs> something right. Yeah. And, and I, I also, I don't, again, like, I don't know Enterprise. I actually don't know how this big story arc plays out and I actually don't want you to tell me I think I'm I just want to okay I'll figure it out on my own I'll watch it on my own I have my own ideas about what I want to have happen but but that's all of a way to say like I think people do things so they can feel better more often than they are actually thinking about what is best for the other person and and that's where I lean a little bit toward what Archer is doing. Again, not knowing what happens later in the season. But that's hard. You know, I think that's... And, and I think that is something to be called out for people. It's like, you say you're doing this for them, but I actually think it's so you can sleep at night. And yeah. that's more about you than it is about them. Yeah, there's a reason this episode is called Damage, and yeah. it's not because the ship is damaged. So we talked at length about um, the sort of broader social implications of drug addiction uh, with respect to symbiosis and TNG and how that might be different (laughs) in terms of how we approach that as a diplomat and a starship captain, Mm -hmm. uh, as it would be in the case of an individual therapist and their patient. And that's one reason I want to ask you, Elizabeth. So, you know, DS9 season two, there's no therapist that we are aware of. on board and so Bashir is in charge of taking that on to whatever yeah. whatever training he has and he does his best I think um, but if you if Garrick at this point had this problem and Bashir sent him to you Starfleet counselor Elizabeth um, how would you deal with Garrick that's a really good question I am not licensed yet, so I am still cooking as a therapist. Eventually, that's not going to be true, and you're not going to be able to hide behind that. I know, but I'm not there yet. (laughs) Totally not there yet. Full disclosure. Um, Hmm. I think there's two parts. One is treating the physiological drug addiction. By repairing the device, is Garrick able to go back to what he was doing before, just like basically constantly being high? Is that what happens when Bashir like fixes the device? No, no, no. In the end, he, he does shut it off. So there is a change here. Well, okay. they shut it off before the end. It's that they, I, I think they're able to regulate it so that he can come off of it. Mm, okay, um, okay. And then he's not, he's no longer giving himself the, the injections. Yeah, okay. The molecular structure of Garrick's leukocytes has been disrupted. I need to synthesize replacements in order to stabilize his condition. I'll see to it that all the necessary data is transferred to your station's computers. I think 
what I would first start to focus on is actually letting Garrick express the pain he's in, you know, because I think, I think part of the problem was him refusing to feel that and refusing to share it with anybody. And I think a, a big part of what therapy can be is allowing the exiled parts of ourselves to come forward and to say what they have to say and like have their experience be welcome, you know? And if Garrick has been unable to share about how torturous his experience has been, that's like the first way I would try to get in is like, tell me what that has been like for you and exploring it by actually feeling your emotions and by being witnessed in, in your experience, it moves out of you. Like, I think a lot of people are afraid to feel things, you know, myself included. Like, I, you know, we were talking before we recorded about how I've just been feeling so anxious and, like, like beating myself up over something. Like, I struggle with that, too. I particularly don't want to feel incompetent or anxious. And I would be like, can I distract myself from these feelings by scrolling on social media for an hour? You know, so that I don't feel this way. The only way out is through. You have to feel it and you have to let it out. And and being witnessed in that is really powerful. Letting him have his experience can be really healing. Because of Garrick's nature as a character and DS9's nature as a series and Andrew Robinson's incredible performance as the character and all of that, yeah. I think we take what he says about his life being a torture at face value when you know, it's a little melodramatic. Why are you telling me this, Garrick? So that you can forgive me. Why else? I need to know that someone forgives me. Obviously, he has, he suffered pain, he suffered humiliation, he suffered loss, but it's like we all have. And to say, my life is torture, I would think, as a therapist, that's like a sign of something else. Hmm. It's like, is your life really, are you really in an internment camp? No. But to sort of just say, well, my life is torture. I'm just going to get numb to it the best I can is, I, I do think it is self-indulgent and it's a little selfish. Mm. What what I hear you saying is essentially Garrick shouldn't feel the way he feels. <laughs> and that's, that's, a, that's a me thing. You're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, it's, it's a journey. And sometimes you, like in therapy, you go one direction and then you turn and go back the other way. And so with Garrick, I actually think it's more worth starting to be like, you are allowed to feel this way and I want to hear about it and I want to honor your experience because he hasn't had that yet. Once that's been able to kind of the pressure on that part has been released, then you can go the other direction and be like, well, what are the good things about living here? You know, you've made a friend, yeah. right? So it's, it's, <laughs> it's not one or the other. It's kind of like, where is the most deficit? Like, where, where is the imbalance the strongest? And you try, to, you try to bring that back first, and then you go the other way. Sometimes, you know, if people are really in their heads about something and just like thinking in a loop, you can try to like bring them back into their body and get out of the story of like what they're telling themselves. And then once they're kind of more grounded, then you can go back into the story. But you have to do the other thing first. Very wise. I, this, is, this is why you're doing this therapy <laughs> thing and I'm not. I, I think I'd be a pretty terrible therapist. Not going to lie. Um, and that's okay. 
coping with pain is a is a health issue, right? And it's like we we as you alluded to in our last segment, we draw these make we make these major distinctions between uh, uh, legal and illegal drugs, between medicine and like illicit substances, uh, between addiction and just a sort of normal healthy coping mechanism, between uh, medicine and poison. Like we we draw these lines when really they are blurry gray areas um and finding your finding your way out of the blur i think is the 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 hardest part because you know we we look at these people on screen or in real life who are clearly addicts and it's like well you're an addict go get help go go fix that and i think when you're inside of it it is very different the problems that these people are trying to solve with drugs are problems that everyone experiences. But they don't always have the same resources or tools that you and I have, for example. So I just finished um, a, a substance abuse class in my program, which is one reason I wanted to do this episode now, like while all, of this, all of this stuff was fresh. And a concept that I was introduced to that made a lot of sense to me was viewing addiction actually as an attachment disorder. When we're, when we're young, you know, we can't regulate our emotions and we need our parents to actually help soothe us, you know, and by them soothing us and by their interactions, like that becomes our model for how, what we can do ourselves. Like if your parents didn't soothe you, you end up not being able to soothe yourself when you're older. Um, because you need you, you need those training wheels, essentially. You need to be modeled that in order to know how to do it yourself eventually. How many times have you been like, I feel like crap, and then you go hang out with your friends and you feel better afterward? Like that that is an affect soothing right there. And if you either don't have other people in your life or you don't have the interpersonal skills to get that kind of regulation from people, from your spouse, from your community, from anybody, if you are essentially left to your own devices and you never learned how to calm down drugs are a really good way to calm down and so it's it's compensating like you were talking about earlier like they are using the only tool that they have access to 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 deal with really really strong emotions and so seeing as that being the source for why this behavior is happening it then gives you another way to treat the disorder that has less to do with shame and stigma and like the the withdrawal symptoms and the physiological and the psychological that is still all there but if you view addiction as an attachment disorder suddenly the way you treat that is by helping people make healthy attachments and giving them those kind of experiences and helping them create that inner psychic scaffolding so that when catastrophes happen, as it does in every life, they have other means to deal with it. That's really fascinating, Elizabeth. Uh, just as a reminder to our listeners, uh, you went into a great deal of detail uh, on attachment theory in our episode about parenting, which is episode 13 of the podcast. So uh, feel free to check that out. Elliot, I'm always impressed that you just remember, like, I had, I don't remember what episode that was. So great job. Um, <laughs> now make, a, make, a, make, make a poor therapist, but a, a decent librarian. 
for me, the idea of addiction as an attachment disorder, like, gets into the emotional wounding of what happens to people that makes them behave in certain ways. And it's just one of many things that we've talked about in this episode that hopefully can start the destigmatization of people who are suffering from substance abuse. Like, they're not bad people. They are in a bad situation and with bad tools. Do you want our world to suffer? Oh no, I don't want that. You must trust yourselves. There are other options. I hope you realize what you've done to us. Of that you can be sure. Not surprising that there are residual effects. They're probably temporary. And if they're not? Then you'll learn to cope with them. I'm certain I'll be able to. You sort these emotions. Don't expect them to vanish overnight. Patience. And I think it's really important for us to have compassion for them and to move as a society towards seeing people as people and wanting to help them instead of punishing them and labeling them as criminals. So often we have a punitive system for people who are behaving in ways we don't think they should and we punish people instead of helping them. And it's one of the huge tragedies of modern civilization, in my opinion. And we have to start somewhere. And I think starting with destigmatizing people who are suffering from addiction is, is one of many ways in. a little glimpse into the, the, the different aspects of substance abuse. Uh, you know, we have these sociological factors, these social factors that get played out in symbiosis. We have the uh, sort of it, what gets informed from childhood and, and um, repressed trauma, you might say, um, in, in the person of Garrick in the DSIN episode. And then we have the sort of ongoing stress yeah. or current stress that might in, might influence a person to become addicted or abuse a substance um, with our Enterprise episode. And I really like the fact that it Star Trek gives us the option of looking at this issue in very different ways, all of which are relevant and true to the situation in real life. Yeah, I think you did, as always, a great job picking the episodes that we talk about with the various themes. And and I, I also appreciate that Star Trek, you know, acknowledges that a big part of substance abuse is a societal problem versus an individual problem. And that's always yes. when you're trying to say, or sorry, and when you're trying to solve a societal problem or a systemic problem on an individual level, that's actually a big disservice because some things are not individually you know you can't you know you can't solvable solvable yeah. yeah like if someone is suffering the effects of racism that's unfair to say pull yourself up by your bootstraps like you should be able to deal with this by yourself and that's you know so i do appreciate the different angles that star trek has taken i and if you or someone you know is suffering from substance abuse uh there is the SAMHSA National Hotline that can offer confidential free help 
from public health agencies and can help you find substance use treatment and uh, provide more information. And you can call that number at 1-800-662-4357. Thanks for that, Elizabeth. And thank you, uh, as always, for your incredible insights. Thank you to our late listeners, patrons. Um, we, uh, we can't do this without you. Thank you for helping us grow the channel. Um, please like and subscribe. All of that good stuff uh, always helps us reach new people, which we uh, are like to do. Next week, uh, we're going to continue our discussion on substances, um, but in a little bit more of a positive light, because I, just to be clear <laughs> with our audience, drugs are not bad, bar none, right? Abuse is bad. Um, exploitation is bad. Uh, using drugs in response to, or as, as, as an unhealthy um, mechanism of trauma response is bad. Uh, but drugs, bar none, are not bad. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about some more fun examples of uh, their cropping up in Star Trek. So I look forward to talking uh, with you about that next week, Elizabeth. Yep, likewise. Uh, always wonderful to chat with you, Elliot. I'm so glad we get to nerd out about this stuff. And uh, yeah, see you <laughs> next time. <laughs> see you next week. This gives the Breckians the opportunity to appear magnanimous. This gives the Breckians the opportunity to appear magnanimous. Oh, I can say that word. Say it one more time. Pharmacological. Pharmacological. Okay. Very pharmacological. Fuckity fuck. <laughs> yeah. Pharmacological. That was right. That was right. Oh, okay. Did I did I break it too soon? Yeah, it's okay. Do it again. Oh, fuck. Okay. Okay. Pharmac- pharmacological. Pharmacological. Okay. Oh, what am I on right now? It's fine. <laughs> yeah.